2: On St Bartholomew's day, the 24th of August, 1572, French Protestants, also known as Huguenots, were slaughtered in vast numbers in Paris and across France in episodes of brutal, sickening violence. The massacre took place just a few days after the wedding of the king's Catholic sister, Marguerite, to the Protestant King Henri of Navarre an event that had been designed to quell religious tensions, not to exacerbate them. It was the worst religious massacre in this century of religious violence. To discuss the road to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Nichols. She took her PhD at Cambridge and is a lecturer in early modern history at St. Anne's College, Oxford. She's the author of Political Thought in the French Wars of Religion and is writing a book about the wars for a general audience called The Midnight Bell, which will be out in 2023. And I asked her to introduce us to France in the 16th century and then take us up to the events of 1572. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about something that we both find utterly fascinating. So perhaps you could start by introducing us to France in the 16th century. Certainly.
3: So France has just come out of the Hundred Years War with England and is actually looking pretty robust. So it's very surprising, actually, that we end up at this sort of moment of crisis in the middle of the century. If we're looking at the monarchy, it's looking very confident. They've reclaimed their lands back from England for the most part and are starting a couple of pretty ambitious wars in Italy. It's also very sort of robust and exciting culturally, the French monarchy. It's the time of the Renaissance and the Italian wars actually have an advantage and there's a lot of cultural exchange or at least the French benefit certainly from a lot of Italian influence. And Francois I is really a Renaissance king in that sense and he's very keen to patronise the arts. Leonardo da Vinci is invited to the French court and even dies in France. France is the first spends all sorts of money accumulating books and manuscripts from all over the place and really turning France into a cultural hub. The monarchy is looking really good. Claude de Césel, who's a jurist who writes at the time a book called La Grande Monarchie, The Great Monarchy of France, describes it as one of the best in Europe because its system is so good and just and its people are so free, but also they're so pious. So France is is a Catholic country and a very devout one as well, and that is being celebrated in the literature at the time. And commercially, France has bounced back from the wars of religion and it's a real time of opportunity after all the discoveries in the Americas and you have all this gold and silver flooding into Europe and towns and cities that are able to capitalise on this do very well and so do merchants working in them. But as you can sense from the fact that this all ends in crisis, there is another side to the story and there are weaknesses in the French monarchy that are becoming apparent. There is also the social side where... If you are living in France in the 16th century, the chances are you're working on the land. 90% of the population do, and that is an extremely tough life. There's a demographic explosion, so population numbers are rising enormously, and grain supplies need to try and keep up with that, and that's not always the case. Peasants especially suffer from famine, from plague, natural disaster, all sorts of things, and incredibly high tax, because all these Italian wars are very expensive. So there are two sides to this coin. But overwhelmingly, the idea you get from looking at France at the beginning of the 16th century is that it's a very obedient, very devout society, that kings are powerful when they're ruling their country and the people are not inclined to rebel even when they're put under an enormous amount of pressure financially and
2: socially. And you've mentioned Francois I, often known in English as Francis. In the early 16th century, France is being ruled over by his family, the Valois family. He died in the same year as Henry VIII in 1547, was followed by his son, Henri II. And Henri's wife was the famous Catherine de' Medici, from that important Italian family. We had many children, including five sons, although one died in infancy. And so the succession is looking like it's guaranteed, But as we'll see. All would not be quite as it seemed. But let's pick up the story perhaps at the end of the 1550s. What happened then?
3: By 1559, France is bankrupt. These wars have really drained their resources. And so the wars with the Holy Roman Emperor, with the Habsburgs, come to an end with the Treaty of catoucan because the Spanish and the French are financially exhausted. But also both Spain and France now have to pay serious attention to what they see as the Protestant threat in France. Protestantism is really on the rise in Europe and it's really taken hold in France, so much so that even when the Spanish delegates come to France to sign the treaty, the calvinist church is holding its first meeting its synod in the capital in secret so you know these two things are happening at the same time so all the ingredients of a crisis are there but it shouldn't necessarily have tipped over into a full-blown war but then we have this problem that henry ii dies in a jousting accident aged 40 this is not foreseen he's supposedly riding a horse whose name is Malheureux, which means unfortunate in French, given to him by the Savoyard with whom he was making a treaty. So they seem to have doomed him by giving him <laughs> his terribly named horse. So what this means for the French monarchy is that now Henry's 15 year old son, Francois, is king notionally. But it's also the time for Catherine de' Medici to come into the foreground of politics. But I talked a little earlier about the structural weaknesses in the French monarchy, and I think these really come to the fore at this point of crisis in royal authority. So it's also an opportunity for the Guise family, a very powerful Catholic family, very close to court. Francois is married to Mary Stuart of Scotland, and the Cardinal of Guise and the Duke of Guise are her uncles. And they immediately step into what is a power vacuum and take control of the court so much so that it's seen as a coup d'etat, in fact. And one of the Florentine ambassadors describes the Cardinal of Lorraine as occupying the position of as both Pope and King in the kingdom. So it's sort of a sign of how contemporaries are seeing what's happened. And the Guise family, who are already unpopular, make themselves even more so by trying to address problems with the royal finances, but also by increasing the persecution of Protestants.
2: Yes, I suppose there's all these parallels and indeed links to England and to Scotland. You've mentioned that Francois is married to Mary, Queen of Scots. as She's known and that she's related her mother was a Guise and so she's related to the Guise family. But also the parallel, I suppose, of 15th century England where we've had a young king and the people around him jockeying for power and more than once indeed. And so there's this sort of context of a bit of a power struggle going on into which this religious crisis is playing. So towards the end, I suppose, of Francois I's reign, the number of people being prosecuted for heresy had risen sharply. Heresy was a capital crime. And among those who counted as heretics were those who were becoming Protestant. So let's talk about why Protestantism caught on i suppose in france who was converting where in france were they based and why were they going for the particular sort of strand of protestantism that we know as calvinism Mm.
3: the roman church is really in trouble at the start of the 16th century there's no question about that that it is in dire need of reform it's seen as totally and utterly corrupt at every level Bishops are absent from their diocese, but also you have ill educated priests who are seen as being lascivious and really just poorly equipped to cater for the salvation of souls. So there is a crisis in the Roman Church. What you get in France, interestingly enough, is what's known as a pre reform movement before even Calvinism takes off. Where there's a group of reformers who gather around Marguerite d'Angoulême, who's the king's sister and who's very much taken by the notion that the French Church is in desperate need of reform. So in the 1520s, we have quite a strong sense in enclaves in France that the church needs reform. The bishop who connects himself to Marguerite is called Guillaume Brissonnet, and he says the church is like a dried up bed of a summer stream where the heat of solipsism, avarice and ambition have caused its spirit to evaporate. So there's this strong sense of the need for reform. The problem is that neither the French monarchy nor the Sorbonne, which is the University of Paris, which is incredibly influential, where theologians are based, who are seeing what's happening in Germany with Martin Luther, and are very, very suspicious of any attempts to reform the church. And the problem there, again, is that is social crisis and upheaval is going together with religious reform. So the reason the theologians at the Sorbonne are so suspicious is because they think that all the French peasantry are going to have a revolt, which is what happened in Germany, and that the social order will completely collapse. So the problem, I think, in France is that these very early signs of moderate reform are totally squashed. But Marguerite dangouleme nevertheless, plays a really important role because she protects lots of these reformers precisely because they face all this opposition, become radical evangelical reformers. And included amongst that number is John Calvin, John Calvin, who is protected by her And is able to escape from France when the persecutions start to happen, he goes first to Basel and then of course to Geneva, where he writes his Institutes of the Christian Religions, an enormously influential book of reform, and he establishes himself there as the head of the church. So we've got a couple of things going on. We've got a fairly widespread appetite for reform. We've got a social crisis going on, but we also have members of the nobility, and particularly women, who are really drawn to this idea of reforming the church, and they play a supremely important role, actually, in converting lots of the nobility to Calvinism.
2: The role that women played in conversions among the nobility is fascinating. Do we have any evidence for why people of a lower social status are converting. And I know I'm asking a very difficult question.
3: It is very hard to answer not least because we don't have the same kinds of source materials you know we're not looking at letters we're not looking at a whole set of documents that sort of helps us explain why noble women were converting indeed Calvin and his disciple Theodore de bebeza are deliberately targeting noble women and we know that but if we come to looking at the underprivileged the very poor it's harder to know why the doctrines of Calvin are appealing because certainly to a modern eye they look pretty harsh and unrelenting but nevertheless nevertheless, Nevertheless, there does seem to be some genuine appeal in the doctrines of Calvinism, not least because this sort of idea of stripping back the wealth of the church is obviously quite significant in a time of deep inequality where peasants working in their villages and their communities can see, for example, local monasteries that have enormous amounts of wealth and monks who are supposed to have taken vows of poverty, living these kind of luxurious lives while they suffer. So there's a sort of a fusion here of social questions with a genuine belief in the need to reform the church. People are, after all, concerned about their life after death and what happens. There's a lot at stake here contemporaries in france i'm thinking in particular of a protestant historian called la popeline who thinks that the underprivileged are welcoming calvin because it enables them to cast off social restraints. so there's a kind of freedom that comes with calvinism and certainly that is a very common theme throughout the writings on the french wars of religion that there's a sort of social advantage to becoming a calvinist and so that's why you get protestants often being associated with rebellion and social disorder it's not necessarily true it's quite a complex picture, and A really powerful mixture, I think, of zeal and social resentments. So we have that side of the picture, and then we've also got the merchant glasses and local officials if you like in towns and really the reformers from geneva are focusing on towns they're sending out their pastors particularly to these hubs it obviously makes sense and so there you get a kind of illiterate community who take to the new ideas about reading scripture in private to yourself and really having this kind of close relationship with god so that has a different appeal in the towns i think The people who aren't convinced very often are the magistrates in the sovereign courts and members of the local parliament, you find that that remains a very conservative institution in the sense that the connection between king and God and the Catholic faith is seen as being so strong. And again, any challenge to that order is going to result in total collapse.
2: I suppose one of the theories that's been put forward is that kind of participatory nature of worship to read for those who can of course as you said the bible but also singing songs that are based on psalms and there's a sort of catchiness of the tunes is one way that you can identify them if they're humming them as they work at their craft the other thing i wonder is about regional identity you know how they convert across a kind of swathe of the south and east of france and particularly in the south in the savenne and near to nîmes which is the area i've worked on That's been the classic place of heterodoxy. It's been where the Cathars established strength a couple of centuries earlier. And there'd been a sort of sense of distinction from the metropole of Paris. And I wonder to what extent it's also, I mean, I wouldn't say it's pure bloody mindedness, but there's certainly a sense of kind of regional distinction there as well.
3: I think that's absolutely right and this actually is part of the sort of picture of France in the 16th century that it is a very difficult kingdom to govern precisely because it is made up of localities with their strong identities, they have their own languages, they often have their own customary law code that has nothing to do with how things are being run at the centre and I think your reference to the Quetta is very important and you can certainly see in communities in the south where there have been so-called heretic movements then actually there tends to be a culture of reaction against the institutions of the catholic church again which are seen as being very disconnected from the way in which people are worshipping locally so you get quite a lot of kind of clandestine movements erupting in the south i think that is because there is a long tradition of that happening there
2: and i guess we ought to talk about terminology as well we say protestant or calvinist but in france we also say huguenot why do they get called huguenot in france
3: It's actually part of the polemical writing that's produced as these divisions between Catholics and Protestants become harsher and harsher in the 1560s. This term Huguenot starts to be used, and we think it's a combination of German and Flemish terms. And it's also connected to a Genevan reformer called Besançon Hugues. And there's a sort of curious sort of fusion of language, but it's still a little bit of a mystery as to how that came about and why that is it has remained such an important term for denoting that
2: group. You mentioned that in 1559, we have the king dying as a result of that jousting accident in the same year as the Protestant church, which also actually there's a fourth name, it's called the Reformed Church, L'Église Reformé, is drawing up its confession of faith, it's establishing its structure, which is synods meeting with deacons and ministers and elders. And it's still illegal, but these ministers are starting to involve themselves in national politics. So I wonder if you can introduce some of the kind of key Protestant leaders to us and take us up to the conspiracy of Amboise.
3: So the one sort of other element of Calvinist reform is that it is, as you suggest, becoming very political. And this is because we find members of the nobility, powerful members of the nobility, becoming Calvinists. And there's certainly an aspect of ambition there. There's an aspect of material greed as well, of the nobility wanting to get their hands on some very wealthy portions of church property. So amongst the main Protestant leaders, we have Admiral Coligny, who's an ally in Normandy, a very important military figure, strong reason for early Protestant success in the early wars and two very ambitious princes who are members of the Bourbon House. So this is Louis, the Prince of Condé, who's a key figure in encouraging the nobility to embrace Calvinism, and his brother Antoine de Bourbon, who is King of Navarre and Father of the Future, Henry IV, He's another leading figure, but it's quite clear with Antoine de Bourbon that it's really his wife, Jeanne d'Albret, who is daughter of Marguerite d'Angoulême, is the one who has all the sort of moral courage and conviction when it comes to Calvinism. And she's largely responsible for the fact that the Southwest becomes Calvinist sanctuary. Indeed, she leads the movement really from 69 when Condé dies. So these are the leading figures. The conspiracy of Amboise is an interesting one actually because it's not so much driven by these very powerful members of the French nobility, it's driven by a chap with a grudge, really, called Jean du Barry. He's Seigneur de la Renaudie, he's sort of middle status nobleman without much money who's been sent into exile by the Parliament of Dijon because there's been a dispute over some clerical property and benefits. So La Renaudie goes to Calvin to try and persuade him to support a plot against the Guise family. And lots of disaffected Calvinists detest the Guise for many very good reasons. His plan is very ambitious. It's to seize the King um, Francis II and remove the Guise from their position of power and to put a Bourbon on the throne. Calvin doesn't think this is a good idea. And really without his support, it is doomed to failure. Nevertheless, Larenody gets Condé on side to support the conspiracy and he gathers a band of similarly disgruntled and impoverished noblemen around him. The problem is the Guise get wind of the plot and they anticipate an attack with an ambush and they capture and execute several hundred of the conspirators, including La Renaudie. And it's as a result of the conspiracy of Amboise, actually the the term Huguenot that we were talking about comes into play as a way of denoting a different group that has very clearly now emerged in France as a political force.
2: So political, but obviously clearly religious. And you've mentioned the Guise, Other, other key noblemen or leaders on the Catholic side hardly sides at this point, it's a bit arbitrary, but those who are swearing to defend the Catholic Church against these dissidents at this point? There are plenty. I mean, the Guise
3: family is very powerful, but Charles de Bourbon, who's the third brother of the other two who are Calvinists, remains Catholic, as do the bourbon Montpensier branch, which is a very powerful family. And indeed, this is one of the problems of the French wars of religion, is that precisely because the kings of France at the earlier part of the 16th century become so dependent on their nobility for money to fight these wars, they start handing out all sorts of offices and and giving away quite a lot of power and actually allowing nobles like the Montpensier to accrue more and more land, actually and more and more authority. So that by the time we get to the 1560s, we've got a significant Catholic force who are also facing a challenge from an equally powerful, if you like, Calvinist nobility.
2: It seems strange in the context of all this then that we get to the 28th of January 1562 and the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, who's operating with a certain amount of power at this point in time, grants legal toleration to Protestantism in the Edict of Saint-Germain. Why does this happen?
3: Catherine de' Medici has this terrible reputation, but she's really a kind of voice of sanity at this point. She wants peace and she wants security for her family and for the throne. And she's prepared to do that through following policies of moderation and levels of toleration of the new reformed faith. So this edict of toleration doesn't come out of nowhere. It's actually the result of a failure, a first attempt on her part to bring theologians together to overcome their disagreements to address the problem of reform in the church. So we have the Colloquy of Poissy of 1561, which is a gathering of the French National Church that she calls. The royal family attend this king's council. We have 40 bishops and archbishops and plenty of theologians and canon lawyers as well. And the interesting thing is that this force is engaging with representatives from the Protestant side as well. So Theodore de Bez is there, Calvin's right-hand man. But there is no agreement, there's no rapprochement, the doctrinal problems are still very much there. So it fails. So Catherine tries another route, which is to say, to make some concessions to the Calvinists. So the edict allows them to hold assemblies in the countryside, but it forbids them to worship within city walls. So this enrages militant Catholics and the local parliament, who I mentioned earlier, often a point of resistance to edicts of toleration do not want to register this edict. It's a tragedy, really, that this fails because the failure of the colloquy is really the failure of a policy of moderation. And after this, there's really no going back, it seems.
2: I'm struck by the fact that whilst we think of legal toleration for people of different faiths as something that's obviously rational and a reasonable response, nobody in the 16th century, to use the words of 1066 and all that, thought of it as a good thing. No, absolutely
3: not. Again, there is so much at stake here. Pragmatism can't really win out when you're looking at the salvation of souls. And so even for moderate Catholics, the idea of tolerating what is seen as heresy has been condemned by the Roman church. And this rejection of papal authority is unconscionable. It is impossible to imagine. But there's also this other side of things where, although we've we've been talking about the fact that France isn't unified in a kind of modern sense, it's really a composite monarchy with its own localities and all of their different allegiances. But the one thing that does unify France is its Catholicism and the fact that its king is Catholic and that he has a direct line to God. You know, he's been appointed by God. And so the idea that tolerating any form of heresy in France would actually be to corrode what binds France together, I think, is something that really worries moderate Catholics that you might think of as otherwise being drawn to the notion of toleration. It's really only when things are absolutely at their worst that the notion of toleration becomes palatable to that group.
0: Hello. If you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast. From the Napoleonic Battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11, we reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At
3: the time the weapons were tested, there was this you know, perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead.
0: And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're updating your closet for
4: summer, you need dependable clothes that you can wear anywhere, whatever you're doing. And for that, you can look to American Giant. American Giant makes clothing of exceptional quality for people who want something more than the status quo offers. Whether you need to re-up on reliable everyday t-shirts, pick up a solid pair of shorts, or invest in a pair of durable jeans, American Giant is a better choice. They make everything right here in the USA, from start to finish. So when you buy from American Giant, you become part of creating jobs and improving local communities in towns and cities all across the country. And keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Shop your new summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23.
2: The journey to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which is a decade later, begins, I suppose, really a couple of months after the granting of that legal toleration with a much smaller scale massacre at a little town called Vassy in March 1562. What happened there and what were the consequences?
3: So this is when Francis, the Duke of Guise, is passing through the village of Vassy with his men, just at the point where several hundred Huguenots are worshipping in a barn, as the Edict of Saint-Germain permitted them to do. But what happens is the Duke's men try to break up the meeting and they're repulsed at which point they start firing on the Huguenots. And there are lots of different versions of this story. Um, The Duke de Guise doesn't want to take responsibility for it, and he accuses the Huguenots of starting the fight and all of that. But there's no two ways about it. that This looks like an appalling attack on innocent worshippers. Etienne Pasquier, who's a lawyer in Paris at the time, writes to his friend that he thinks this is the beginning of a tragedy. And he was absolutely right. This compound of religious and social tensions is now explosive. The immediate consequences are that Condé and Coligny take full control of the Huguenot army in response to what they think is actually an orchestrated attack on the movement. So the appearance of it is as bad as the reality as well, and the way in which it's interpreted by Protestants who already feel under threat means that we tip into the chaos that becomes the first war.
2: So war breaks out between the two sides but is relatively swiftly concluded with a peace in 1563 in the form of the Edict of Amboise which restricted Protestant rights of worship to specific localities. It holds for four years. We ought to have mentioned I suppose that in 1560 Francois II had died after only 18 months on the throne and his younger brother Charles had become Charles Ninth, and in the years after 1563 as this teenage king came to his age of majority he traveled through the kingdom to rekindle loyalty to the crown but it didn't help that these years were occasions of natural disaster how far do you think that this context of natural disasters and a boy ruler played into the wars breaking out again
3: I mean, we have this problem of minority rule. I mean, Charles has reached his majority, but he's about 13 when he and his mother go on this passage through France to try and bring peace and reassurance to the people of France. And they're certainly they're not blind to the horrors that are perpetrated against Protestants and Catholics have their complaints too. So there is a lot of unrest in the country. Charles is a child and ill-equipped to handle the challenges that are being thrown at him, not least problems of religious division. Catherine de' Medici is a very competent ruler but there's no two ways about it. The French monarchy is built around the idea of having a very powerful male in charge. It's what we call personal monarchy and the system really doesn't work without that figure. So I think, yes, you're absolutely right that natural disaster and all the appalling things that plague agricultural labourers in this era are feeding into a much, much bigger social crisis. But it's also a problem of not having that central figure of authority to bring some sense of order, even if that's only an illusion. Catherine de' Medici is quite confident that she has brought about peace. So even in 65, she's writing having gone to a ball in Cognac where Huguenots and Catholics are dancing together and she thinks that she can bring about peace through her son. The problems here are that by now the wars of religion are international because both sides have sought support from powers aboard so we have the Huguenots naturally reaching out to England where Elizabeth is monarch and to the Holy Roman Emperor as well the Protestant princes in Germany. And the Catholics on the other side are reaching out to Spain. So there's an international dimension now to the wars, but there's also this no end to suspicion on both sides that the other side is plotting against them. The sense of suspicion is enhanced by the fact that the Duke of Alba, the head of the Spanish army, is marching along the eastern borders of France to suppress a revolt in the Netherlands that erupted in 67. So the crown at this stage is quite suspicious of Spain and it does look for a a moment as though though the French aristocracy will actually all band together in a sort of moment of anti-Spanish sentiment and fear of an invasion but what happens is that the rivalry between the houses of Bourbon and Montmorency make this absolutely impossible both vying for military command relations break down Condé and Coligny leave court and convince themselves that there's a conspiracy between the Spanish forces and Catherine de' Medici so it was another attempt to take the court into custody by force which is repelled but violence breaks out again.
2: It's probably worth mentioning Seeing as we are recording this on the 30th of September, that in 1567 in the town I've worked on, Nîmes, there was a massacre unusually of Catholics by Protestants, which becomes known as the Michelade because it's on the St. Michael's Day. And in the end, a hundred Catholics are killed. Although normally in this period, and as we'll see when we get to St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, we're generally speaking about the massacre of Protestants, what I think is really interesting about all of this is that we're not just seeing pitch battles between armies, we're seeing clashes between neighbours. You know, I often think of the clash in Paris between the Parisian Huguenots, who are worshipping in the Faubourg of Saint-Jacques, and then Catholics at the neighbouring church of Saint-Médard, And in 1562, they clash violently, probably over noise that each is making. And there's been lots and lots of work, of course, on this. Famously, Natalie Zeman Davis writing her wonderful article on the rights of violence. Can we talk a bit about violence between neighbours? What's going on?
3: What Natalie Zeman Davis did in that important article and subsequently was actually tried to argue that, no, we can understand this as more than just madness and insanity. There's rituals, there are patterns of behaviour and she has indeed been enormously influential in taking that approach. I mean, we are looking at appalling levels of violence here. There's rape, there's pillage, there's ransacking, but men are castrated and pregnant women are disemboweled, children and the unborn are not spared. This bodies are stripped naked and chucked in the Seine or indeed the nearby river, wherever you happen to be. And it is almost unfathomable what happens in 72, especially. But there's a lot to be said, I think your reference to what's happening in the early 1560s between neighbours to what happens when places of worship are attacked. And I think the iconoclasm of the Protestants is deeply traumatic for Catholics to have places of worship desecrated as they see it. And so both sides are kind of vying for this to be the people who do the cleansing and the purifying in an attempt to restore what they think as the right way to worship. So there are lots of ways of trying to explain all of this, but it is nevertheless, I think, still quite baffling the extent to which neighbours are prepared to turn on each other, families even. On St Bartholomew's Day, you have accounts of a pair of nephews turning on their uncle and aunt who are a Protestant and dragging them out of the house and leading them to a mob who club them to death. You can't really get your head around it. But on the other hand, we actually have examples as well of neighbours protecting one another. So in Paris, the reason that some Protestants survive is precisely because people take enormous risks to protect them. So there's a member of the King's Council, in fact, who takes in about 40 Huguenots over the nights when it happens and sees them safely out of Paris at enormous personal risk.
2: Well I want to come back to some more ideas about what's going on but let's take us up first of all in kind of narrative terms to the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre then. So
3: Marguerite de Valois, his sister of Charles IX, is set to marry Henry, now King of Navarre, in August of 1572. And this is a match that's been orchestrated by Catherine de' Medici and Jeanne d'Albret over quite some time, months, in fact, if not years of negotiations. And Jeanne d'Albret is really very reluctant, not least because her son is a Protestant and Marguerite is a Catholic, but also because she sees Paris as the sort of hub of vice and doesn't want to let her darling son go and be corrupted. But eventually Catherine de Medici succeeds, the wedding is planned and Huguenots and Catholics are invited to the capital to celebrate together. The problem is that it doesn't satisfy anyone really, this alliance. Pope Gregory XIII refuses to sanctify the marriage between a Catholic and a heretic as he sees it. And therefore, the Catholic preachers in Paris take up this drumbeat and start to rage against what they see as an impious union. There's even a nun is said to have toured the city announcing that she'd been sent by God to encourage the extermination of all Protestants for fear that Paris is going to be destroyed by the wrath of God. So actually, even ordinary Catholic inhabitants of in the city are living in fear of what they think is going to be an imminent retribution for this ungodly wedding. So the city is in a really febrile state, even as the wedding goes ahead, which is very lavish and sumptuous. Huguenots and Catholics are jousting and dancing together, but everything is sort of balancing on a knife edge. The trouble actually doesn't start until a couple of days later when on the 22nd of August, Gaspard de Coligny, the head of the Huguenot armies, is returning to his dwellings after a meeting with the king and he's shot by a hired assassin. And Coligny, it's not too much to say, is the absolute hero of the Protestant cause. He's this very sort of glamorous and ambitious, charismatic figure. He was absolutely hated, therefore, by his Catholic opponents. And it looks as though his presence at the wedding was just too tempting an opportunity to miss to take out this important figure. Luckily for Colony, he's leaning over his horse, fixing his shoe when the shot's fired and it hits his elbow and his hand. And he's rushed to his lodgings where the bullets are extracted with immense pain. But nevertheless, he survives. Coligny's mistake, however, is to stay in Paris after that happens, because these simmering tensions are beginning to boil over at the moment of the assassination. The city is in uproar, but Coligny appears to trust Charles, the King to protect him. Catherine and Charles and the Duke of Anjou and the Duke de Guise respond to this crisis by holding a secret meeting. And they agree to make a preemptive strike against the Protestants in the city. We have Coligny's brother-in-law at this point outside of France at the head of what must be a thousand soldiers. And Catherine de' Medici thinks there is going to be a massacre of Catholics in Paris. So in the middle of the night, the city gates are locked. The boats on the Seine are chained up. Weapons are distributed to the militia and to any citizen who can bear arms and the artillery is made ready. In the early hours of the morning, the Duke de Guise takes his Swiss guard to Coligny's lodgings. They break in and they head for the Admiral's room to finish the job. And Coligny is stabbed to death by his attackers. His body is then thrown out of the window where the Duke of Guise is waiting so that Guise can see that the deed has definitely been done. And once he's established that it is indeed Coligny, they cut the Admiral's head off the body and a mob actually made up largely of children drags the body away, castrating it and then attaching it to horses, taking it through the streets of Paris and eventually stringing it up back to Montfaucon, which is where traitors to the crown are executed. The mayhem that happens at the colony resident is heard in the neighbourhood and there's an alarm sounded somewhere between three and four in the morning. The problem is that people standing near the colony house hear, well, they say they hear Guise shouting, the king has commanded it is the will of the king. And once these warning bells are rung, this is taken as an order to undertake a massacre of Protestants in the city and to cleanse it once and for all of heresy.
2: So I suppose there's a sense that there's a desperate desire to believe that finally the king has acted. This longed-for eradication of all Huguenots has been sanctioned by the king. It's not just about one man. It's like, we can attack them all. And that is playing to this idea of ritual but also this idea of legitimacy it is legitimizing terrible violence Mm,
3: absolutely and it's not just in Paris the word spreads incredibly quickly to towns across France where the devastation is just appalling but there's no two ways about it that this was not anticipated by the crown or indeed orchestrated by the crown and Catherine de' Medici is accused of being this sort of Machiavellian figure who planned it all but when you see what happens there's no way that this could have been planned from the center the the total and utter anarchy of the days that follow and the appalling bloodshed is something that just goes completely out of the hands of the crown really and it's terrifying to protestants and catholics it's celebrated in Rome. Gregory the thirteenth has some medals made to commemorate the event where Charles the Ninth is seen as this Hercules who, who's defeated this Hydra of heresy. And I mean it's quite funny really because Charles is a very fragile, weak figure that he's portrayed as this incredibly muscular classical hero but that's often celebrated as a sort of example of you know Catholics rejoicing at the atrocities but there's a lot of horror on the Catholic side as well an Italian doctor who's in Paris at the time Filippo Cavriano, who writes back home that he's never seen such an appalling spectacle And he can't believe that these Huguenots would prefer to martyr themselves for their faith and live as Catholics. And what we do see at this point, we were talking about the impossibility of religious toleration for a lot of moderate Catholics. But actually, this is the moment where that starts to be seen as a more plausible possibility. And indeed, some of the refugees who end up seeking a place of haven, who flee from Toulouse, in fact, to Montauban, There's about 3,000 of them, and it includes Catholics as well as Protestants. So there's a real fear that the world really is going to hell.
2: Can we talk a bit about the violence, not just to be gratuitous, but because often it seems to have some sort of meaning. It seems to be done in a deliberate way to make deliberate points.
3: That's right. There's a very upsetting story, in fact, of a child called Agnes who lives on the houses on the Pont de Notre Dame which have become a target over the last decade actually for local Catholics who come and attack it regularly. There are two houses there, the golden hammer and the pearl that belonged to Protestants that are constantly being attacked and Agnes is a relative of one of these Protestants and in the aftermath of St. Bartholomew anyway, she's dragged out of her house. Her parents are killed but she's then forcibly immersed into a bath of the blood of her parents naked and this kind of subversion of the ritual of baptism is deeply symbolic and sort of orchestrated and so it's exactly as you say it's not just sort of random violence it's very symbolic and even when you see people taking advantage of the situation you know it's very common in times of crisis people to go looting and ransacking houses for goods but even when noble women are being robbed clearly for their goods and their jewels everything that sort of happens seems to be quite symbolic as well i'm thinking of a noble woman called Françoise Bayet, whose husband and son are murdered and she jumps out of an attic window to escape, breaks her leg and is hidden for a while by her neighbour who ultimately gives her away. But she is then dragged by her hair through the streets, which is a way to impugn her chastity to say that she's not a pure woman. And then when she's still alive, her attackers cut her wrists off because they're so impatient to take her bangles away. And when she cries out at this, she's ultimately killed with a meat roaster and her body's then taken to the river, but her hands are left in the streets, literally left to the dogs. There's this kind of deliberate dehumanization, the use of butcher's tools, particularly to try and reduce the Huguenots to something less than human, and really to
2: the status of animals. Yeah, these are, I mean, shocking, terrible accounts. And it is quite something that someone could turn from seeing someone they'd lived alongside they had probably lent things to, exchanged greetings with in the street, and then could turn on them with that degree of violence. It is absolutely shocking. I mean, one idea about the motivation has come from a great French work, Les Guerriers de Dieu by Denis Cruz, The Warriors of God, that there was a sense of millenarianism, that this kind of sense of apocalypse, the imminent end of the world, that was pervading Catholic thinking, and that somehow what you were saying about dehumanising that made the Protestants seem not so much like people, but a kind of pollution that needed to be expunged. Have you come across this in your work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And he's certainly right about the sense of impending apocalypse. But it's something that Protestants feel too. You see that across Europe amongst Protestant communities. So it's certainly there. I think what's happening in the cities in particular is that the Catholic preachers are whipping their congregations up into an absolute frenzy so you're not just dealing with sort of general sense of oh no we're all doomed it's actually being perpetuated and encouraged by catholic preachers and they play a very important role i think in turning crowds of catholics into these violent mobs but i am really struck amidst all this awfulness and madness is that some of the assassinations that take place happen in an incredibly mannered way as well so there's um, a gentleman named Monsoreau who goes to the house of a Protestant minister La Riviere and he knocks on the door greets the man's wife with a kiss on her hand and then asks for her husband and he's told that the husband's walking in the garden and Monsoreau goes out there embraces La Riviere and then says the king has sent him to kill him So he shows the minister a letter purporting to be from Charles and his pistol. And Lariviere responds that he didn't think he's committed any crimes. But if it's truly God's will, then he will pray and put his spirit in the hands of God. So Montauro allows the man to pray and then shoots him dead. We've talked about the kind of ritual of the barbarism of everything that happens and the the butchering that happens. But there's also customs and courtesies that are being observed, even this point of death. And I think you learn an awful lot from that anecdote, particularly as this Italian doctor observed the willingness of Huguenots to be martyred for their faith.
2: What an extraordinary episode. Do we know how many people died in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre across Paris, across France in general?
3: Sometimes it's up to 10,000 Huguenots, they think, have been killed in the weeks following St. Bartholomew. If we think about the population of France, which by the end of the 16th century is about 16, 17 million, it's still a huge portion, particularly of urban communities as well. I mean, they think that several thousand are murdered in Paris alone. And as you say, when the people are losing their neighbours, the effects of that on a local level are unfathomable really.
2: Let's conclude by thinking about the impact of this massacre in France. I mean, perhaps especially on Protestantism, but perhaps more generally as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I say, in Rome, we have the celebrations of the defeat of heresy on the part of the Catholic Church. But Protestants in Europe are reeling in shock. There's no two ways about it. Elizabeth I puts her court into mourning. And even though at that point, she's being courted by Catherine de' Medici's fourth son, the Duke d'Anjou. She bans the French ambassador from her presence for a month. Théodore de Bez, who's now become Calvin's successor, writes that he has no words to describe the event that had led so many Huguenots to their deaths, like lambs to the slaughter. And other Protestants react against what they see as an act of tyranny perpetrated against French citizens. So Medici becomes the tyrant of popular imagination as many know her today, that who premeditated this massacre, she's said to have been reading Machiavelli's book, The Prince and teaching her children to be as evil as possible. She's also accused of devil worship and using magic and poison to entrap her victims. What really interests me in the aftermath of 72 is the political thought side of things where Huguenots start to write tracts about responding to the question of how you can oppose a king who has been appointed by God, whether or not it is permissible to respond to this act of tyranny. And so we get writings about the idea that you can legitimately depose a ruler if they have become tyrannical, but also you can legitimately assassinate them. Based on the notion of popular sovereignty, the idea that the people as a whole are the originators of political power. And if the power that they have entrusted into the the hands of kings is seen to have been misused, and indeed if the king becomes a tyrant, then power is said to revert back to the people, which is an extremely exciting idea really for the age, which as I said, is one of really of obedience. It's one of total and utter respect for monarchy and the power of kings. But now, you know, this point of sort of tragedy and crisis has brought political thinkers to really start considering what other options might lie there for the best way to govern a body politic? And that's not always going to be monarchy. So it's very exciting from that point of view. The revulsion of lots of Catholics, actually, at the massacres helps the Protestant cause to an extent. And we do get lots of refugees holding up in these three or four major cities. The French monarchy goes back to its original policy, really, a sort of moderation of an attempt at tolerance, which, again, sort of demonstrates that Catherine de' Medici did not anticipate the disaster that happened she's ready to grant some concessions to the Huguenots at la rochelle and indeed in that treaty freedom of worship is granted to the four protestant enclaves this is happening in the north of france it doesn't convince protestants in the south
2: and it's very much not the end of the French wars of religion, which will rage on for at least several decades, depending on your definition of when they end. And perhaps, Sophie, we could talk about that some other time, because there's much more to say about the French wars of religion. But this has been an amazing introduction to the culture of France in the 16th century and taking us up to this pivotal moment, this moment of crisis, this extraordinary massacre of perhaps 10,000 Protestants across France and how it happened. So thank you for introducing us to that.
3: Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. History is full of extraordinary people.